The scripture reading this morning is from Philippians chapter 2, verse 19 to 30. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for, for your welfare. For they all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send, to send him just as soon as... I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my Need for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also. Last I should have sorrow upon sorrow, I am more. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. Receive him in the Lord that with all joy and honor. Such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life, to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is the word of the Lord for our church, and it is given for our good. Well, thank you, Harrison. Before we turn our attention to this piece of scripture, let's pray and ask for God's Spirit's guidance. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we know that without your help, our labors are useless. Without your help, even open this word is a waste of time. Without your light and guidance, our search is in vain. And so we pray now that you would invigorate our study of your holy word, that we might be more firmly established in our faith, that we might grow in confidence that you do indeed love us, and that we might see and believe Jesus Christ and all that he has done for us and know your great love for us, and be changed by that. Send your Spirit upon this, our time of study. Transform us by this, your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this week I got a chance to finally tackle a book I've wanted to read, The Second Mountain by New York Times columnist David Brooks. And in this book, Brooks explores how his uh, mindset is changing, how his heart is changing as it relates to having a life of purpose and meaning. 
In the book, he really documents that a lot has gone on in his life from a divorce to exploring things like historic Christianity, and he's had a new realization, a change of heart about how one can live well. And in one chapter of the book, he acknowledges that there was a time in which uh, he lived in an individualistic mindset where he thought individuals just needed good content taught to them and they then could live well. And he's come to realize that everyone desperately needs mentors. In this chapter, he quotes Sir Richard Livingston, the Oxford academic administrator and classics scholar, who writes this, The way to acquire good taste in anything, from pictures to architecture, from literature to character, from wine to cigars, is always the same. To be familiar with the best specimens of each. What Sir Richard Livingston is saying is what we all know all too well, and that is that we are, by nature, imitators, and we need mentors. Sir Richard Livingston is used by Brooks to defend the case that not only do we need mentors, but things like character, which lead towards a meaningful and purpose-led life, that these, these pursuits requires us to often learn things through the form of a mentor, that character is often caught and not taught. And we know this to be true. We know this to be true because we see it every day as we turn on the television. We know we're imitators. Every uh, commercial you see reminds you that you are an imitator. There's a reason why beer commercials never feature a lonely, overweight man sitting at home, uh, depressed, drinking their beer. They always feature someone with next to no body fat having the time of their life because they know people by nature are imitators. Children, you might not think that you by nature are an imitator, and you may go through a period of your life, you may be there right now, where you're frustrated by your parents as they're concerned about the friends you spend time with. But listen, the reason your parents are concerned with the friends you spend time with is not because they think you lack uh, the ability to make wise decisions in life. It's because they know, like it or not, you by nature are a copycat. You will begin to mimic and copy the people you spend time with. And this is why parents are concerned about the people you spend time with. Listen, imitation is inevitable. Kids, adults, it doesn't matter. We are imitators. And Paul knows this. And in this passage, he is saying that imitation is part of the Christian life as well. He's just given us the pattern of the mind of Christ earlier in chapter 2. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not seize upon this privilege, but he made himself nothing and became a servant, died on a cross, uh, gave his life for the good of other people. And because of that, God honored him by elevating him out of the grave and letting him sit at his right hand in heaven. And in this passage, Paul is saying, I want you to be imitators of Christ. But that could feel distant. That could be far away. And so Paul is saying, here are two people that you should learn to mimic. Here are two people who are living out the pattern or the mind of Christ. God's grace is working inside of them. So take note of them and live like them. Paul is going to say that we are called to look up to a certain type of people in this passage. He's going to say we are to look up to people who first labor for the good of others, and second, people who live sacrificially for the cause of Christ. So first, I'm convinced in this passage, as Paul gives this update to the church in Philippi, 
He is telling us to emulate those who labor for the good of others. Mimic, copy those who labor for the good of others. Now, where do we see that? Well, we see it in verse 19 when Paul gives this update that he wants to send Timothy to them soon. Remember, Paul is in prison, maybe in Rome, maybe in Ephesus, and he wants to send his closest colleague to them to help encourage them during this particular season in their life as a church. In verse 20, we read, Paul says, For I have no one like him, that is Timothy, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. Later in the passage, Paul too elevates another servant, a servant named Epaphrodites, who we'll talk about in the second point. He came from Philippi to care for Paul. And in verse 26, Paul lifts him up as well and says something that's incredible. Paul says that Epaphrodites got sick on the way to coming to help Paul. The church in Philippi raises money, sends Epaphrodites to Paul to help him uh, survive in prison. And Epaphrodites becomes sick on the way to delivering the funds that they have raised for Paul. And Epaphrodites, we read, was sick nearly to the point of death. But we find that he was distressed when he gets to Paul, not because of his sickness, He was distressed because he was imagining the feelings that the people in the church in Philippi had as it relates to knowing that he was sick. He was concerned about them being distressed over him more than he was concerned about his own health. Paul lifts up these two examples and says, look, emulate people like this, people who labor for the good of others above their own good. Concern for others, seeking the good of others above your own. This is the mind of Christ that Paul wants for the church in Philippi. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a privilege to be seized and held on to. But for the good of you and the good of me, for the good of his church, he made himself nothing, became a servant on the cross. Listen, the central problem, one way to look at all the problems you'll read about on the news and all the problems you'll face in your house in this next week is that we are a people obsessed with self-interest. Yes, we do promote some kind of servant leadership, but rarely do we serve one another with pure motives. We wash the dishes expecting someone else to do the laundry. We scratch backs hoping someone else will scratch ours. We serve others and when we don't get what we hoped for back, we get exhausted and frustrated. Our service is still very much motivated by self-interest. What can we get back? Paul is lifting up examples of those who labor for the good of others above their own. The French theologian and pastor John Calvin says this, It is very clear That the one who lives the best and holiest life lives and strives for himself or herself as little as he or she can. And no one lives in a worse or more evil manner than he who lives and strives for himself alone and thinks about his own privilege only. This is what Paul is saying. He's saying to take on the mind of Christ is to move against this pollution that has come into our world of, of um, being only concerned with self-interest, which caused so much war and strife and division. He's lifting up these two servants in the church and saying they exemplify other-centered humility. Be like them. Look, we know Timothy. We know that he had a Greek father and a Jewish mother. And we know that for the good of others... In the book of Acts, despite the fact the church said he did not need to be circumcised as an adult male, 
He chose to be circumcised so that he could minister better to the church of Jesus Christ. The church had ruled he didn't need to. He willingly chose to do this for the good of others. He didn't want to trouble those whose conscience was sensitive about his lack of circumcision. He was genuinely anxious and concerned about others' needs above his own. There are few like him, and Paul is elevating him in the church. This is not a hard principle to understand. Who should the church honor? The one with the titles, the one with the acumens, the one with the success, the one who has all the notoriety, the wealth? No. Paul is saying, if you want to know who the church should admire, who the church should make statues for and elevate, maybe, it's those who look for the needs of others above their own. Who should you emulate? Maybe you should think about the one who has come early to church so many months in a row and set up chairs back when we used to do that. Maybe you should emulate the one who cheerfully looks out for the smallest detail on the snack table or who perfectly sets up the welcome table every Sunday to make others feel comfortable and at home in our church. Maybe you should elevate and look up to the one who, rather than growing bitter because no one greets him or her, the one who comes to church anxious to greet and connect with anyone who looks isolated and lonely. You see, that Paul wants the church to know these are the people we need to elevate, and he's highlighting them because he knows we're prone to rarely seeing them. So let me ask, whose concerns rival your own in your own life? If you're a parent, I'm sure you're saying, oh, my children or my spouse. But beyond that, is there any way in which the concerns of our church, the concerns of your sisters and brothers of Christ, actually are more alive, more clear in your mind, than your own personal concerns in your life. Maybe this is something to pray for. Look up to those who labor for the good of others above their own. But next, Paul says that we're to emulate those who live lives, who live sacrificial lives for the cause of Christ. We see him highlighting this, especially in his update about Epaphrodites in verses 25 through 29. Again, Paul's in prison. You may remember there's no three-meal system. There's no warm bed. Without the outside help and without food, he will rot, he will die in prison. The Philippian church hears that he's in prison. They remember him as the, the one who started their church, and they raise money, and they send one of their own, Epaphrodites, to deliver this gift. But apparently on the trip, he becomes so ill that he was near death. He survives, and now he's in Paul's presence, and Paul says, I want to send him back to you. And Paul explicitly says in verse 29, Honor him and others like him because he risked his life completing your gift to me. Epaphrodites nearly died handing off a financial gift. He has proved himself to be someone to emulate based on his pushing through hardship. Therefore, honor him. Therefore, look up to him. He had a task to do, and it was a simple one. It was just to bring these funds to Christ, uh, to Paul and to care for Paul during this time of crisis. He got sick. He could have turned around. He could have gone home, but he felt called to complete the task no matter what stood in front of him. Honor one like this. Listen, every nation shares stories of sacrifices, soldiers dying on the battlefield for their country. The War of 1812, the Battle of Vimy Ridge, Dieppe, 
We celebrate these battles. We wear poppies to remember those who gave the greatest sacrifice for their nation. This is a call to emulate their sacrifice, to be grateful for it, but also to sacrifice as well for the country of Canada. And Paul is saying that so also, in the same way a country would do this, Paul is saying the church too needs to look up to and emulate those who live sacrificially for the cause of Christ. This would mean you, if you're a Christian, should spend some of your time reading biographies of people, not who got rich, not who got famous, not who uh, paved the way in your industry. You need to be finding some biographies of people who live sacrificially for Christ and read about their life. This also goes for your children. You need to put good books in front of them, books that show examples of heroes in the church who use their life for the good of others. I know of one tremendous book series that my family loves, the Lightkeeper series from Christian Focus Publishing. They're not sponsoring this video, <laughs> but they do a great job of elevating and lifting high and telling our children to consider emulating these who live out and serve the cause of Christ above their own needs. This is the mindset of Christ we are to take on. For it was Christ who lived sacrificially for us. And the way we properly honor him and hold him up is by emulating him and others who live sacrificially for his cause. Paul is saying, look up to those who live sacrificially for the cause of Christ, whether that be serving the poor or caring for the sick, whether that be teaching or providing legal aid for those who are in need, whether that be using your, evening, uh, using your evenings to be salt and light to a world in need through coaching sports, whether that be someone who preaches God's word in far-off places, delivers financial gifts from more wealthy parts of the church to poorer parts of the church, no matter what the calling is when you find someone who's lived sacrificially for the call of Christ, emulate them, be inspired by them, live like them. And our own church, we have people who've come before us, and I won't embarrass them, but people who've served as missionaries, you deserve it. You, you, you ought to hear their stories, hear what they did for the sake of Christ, for the cause of Christ, so that you might be inspired and might follow after their lead. We have people in our church who, during their hours in which they are not doing their professional vocation, sacrifice many hours for causes of good around this city because of the cause of Christ. You need to hear these stories. We need to elevate these people. We need to emulate them. The only cause worthy of giving your life to is a cause that you believe will live beyond your life. Look up to those who live sacrificially for the cause of Christ. Emulate them. I'm going to conclude with a story that I hope holds us together. In 1911, in the heart of New York City, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory caught fire. And what took place was one of the deadliest industrial fires in the history of New York City. 147 workers died, mostly young immigrant women. They should have been able to get out. They shouldn't have all died. But the fire escapes were removed and the doors were sealed shut to try to stop people from stealing their products. Because of that, people had to jump from the windows as their only hope of survival. And as the building was up in flames, as people were jumping, the American sociologist Frances Perkins happened to be there. She happened to watch what took place. And her life became changed. That day, she had a cause worth living for. 
This became her cause. In a time when women had little to no government involvement, she began to navigate the halls of power. And in 1912, she became the executive secretary for the Committee on Safety in New York City. Before long, she continued to work to have more influence for the sake of workers, especially the poor, especially those she saw jumping out of the windows. And she did this because she was a committed Christian. This became the cause that she felt called to live for. As she began to work for workplace safety and labor law changes, she realized in this day that the only way a man would take a woman seriously in political life was for them to associate the woman with motherhood. And for the sake of workplace safety, for the sake of the families of those who jumped out of the windows of the triangle sh uh, shirt waste factory, she committed to behaving and dressing and presenting herself in a way that reminded the male-dominated political world of their mother. She was only 33, but she began to dress consciously in the time in somber black dresses, white bow ties, pearls, black tricorn hats. She was so maternal that the press started calling her Mother Perkins. Remember, she made this decision at the age of 33. But eventually, through her efforts, the New York State Legislator, leg, Legislative uh, Branch initiated a 54-hour work week, which prohibited women and children from being forced to work beyond 54 hours, which was a great, great advancement at the time. And through her efforts, she eventually became the first woman to serve in a presidential cabinet, and she changed the labor laws for the entire U.S., especially for women. Now, how did she do it? She did it in large part by suppressing her own desires and personalities and instincts. How did she do it? She did it by transforming her public image, sacrificing her public image for the sake of those who were caught in the fire and who could be caught in future fires, for the sake of workers. She was guided by a cause so great that her clothing and her demeanor were things so small, she was happy to lay them aside. Now, why do I conclude this way? I'm not encouraging any women in the church to take on this tactic today. In fact, as I read about her in David Brooks' other book, The Road to Character, it's quite sad to read what she had to go through in 1920s uh, political world. It was necessary at the time. But I share this because Frances Perkins could only do this if she knew that someone was committed to her cause, if she knew someone took on her dress, if someone took on not only her clothes, but her nature, her human nature. If someone became a servant for her and lived for her, if someone saw her as his cause. And this is exactly what the gospel is about. Jesus was willing to take on not just new clothes, but a human nature. He became a servant and he sacrificed all of his life for the good of all who will trust in him, for their salvation. You see, Francis Perkins knew that through Jesus' sacrifice, she would be able to take on whatever form of service what that was required, that, was, that her Savior had called her to. And this is what this passage is telling us. Paul has given us two servants, Timothy, Epaphroditus, and he's telling us to take on whatever form of service the Lord has called you to for the good of Christ and his kingdom, for the good of his church. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the example of Epaphroditus and Timothy. Father, we don't do a great job of looking up to others. We also thank you that 
your Apostle Paul tells us to look to these men and not be ashamed, but to emulate what we see in them. Would you make us a type of people who look to them and see the way in which your gospel inspired and drove them to do wonderful things for the sake of your kingdom? And would, through looking at them, you help us to see the work of Jesus Christ more clearly, delight in it more, and serve Christ's kingdom wherever he might call. It's in the name of Jesus we ask these things. Amen. Amen. Well, at this time, I invite you to rise, join Alan and Chantel in singing, Yet Not I, But Christ in Me.